name's John Huggins, filling in with Brian, for Brian today. Uh, glad to be with you. Let's, will you take a few deep breaths with me? Our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Would you please be with us during this part of the service as well to open our eyes, to open our ears, that we may see and hear from you, that we might see you for all that you're worth and find our minds freshly captivated by your truth, our hearts freshly captured by your love, and our lives compelled to live for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever experienced something so beautiful that you felt like it changed you? Perhaps a beautiful sight. Imagine with me, if you can, the mountains or the sunset, the stars at night or perhaps the ocean. We go to these places often to see their beauty, to be overcome by them, to be awed. Why do we do that? Maybe it was a beautiful sound, like the sound of music, a symphony, or a choir, or maybe the sound of some words you always longed to hear, the sound of a voice you always wanted to hear. Or maybe you've read something beautiful, like a novel, like Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, and afterwards you thought, I want to be like John Ames. Or maybe it's something that you've experienced. Have you ever experienced receiving some generous gift from someone that was just overwhelming, blew you away, some great act of kindness maybe, or experience yourself being redeemed out of a dark or ugly place. I want to ask some more questions along these lines. What even is beauty? Is it some sort of quality of excellence that we perceive in things? Is it about proportion and balance? Have you ever asked yourself this question? What is beauty and why do we find things beautiful? Is it something that prompts an emotion in you? And then that raises the question, why do certain things or beautiful things prompt emotions in us in the first place? <laughs> you know, science can tell us a lot about how things work in our brain or in our body, but they can't tell us why things work that way or what things are, are for. Science can't tell us what beauty is. It's like asking what is a piano and having someone say, well, when you push this key, look under the uh, lid here, you can see this string vibrates because it's hit with a little hammer. Does that really tell you what a piano is? Or do you need Beethoven to sit down and play it? And then you think that's what a piano is for. Why are we the kind of creatures who respond to beauty, that is, who delight in it, who even sometimes seek it out, who try to be satisfied by it, whether we're going to the beach or to the mountains or to concerts. We find in ourselves perhaps even a craving for beautiful things. Why is it that beauty makes us feel alive? Sometimes beauty makes us feel at peace or at rest. In the history of theology and philosophy, people have often talked about the transcendental values of truth, goodness, and beauty. 
Christians talk about how God is the source of these three transcendental things. That is, he is the source and substance of all truth, of all goodness, and of all beauty. Often in church, we will talk about God's truth, or we'll talk about God's goodness. But do you typically think of God as beautiful? That is to say, do you ever find yourself on purpose seeking the aesthetic pleasure of beholding God's beauty? Whether it's in creation or in your mind's eye as you meditate on his truth. Let's look again at the psalmist and the psalm that was read earlier today in Psalm 27, chapter 4. Listen to the thing that the psalmist has to say about this. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. One thing I'm going to seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I wonder if that kind of passage just feels really foreign to us or just hard to imagine. It doesn't seem like a very practical thing to do, does it? It doesn't seem like that's going to help you achieve your goals, you know, or accomplish something or like check off all the things on the to-do list. And yet this psalmist says, this is the one thing I would seek. The one thing I want more than anything else is to be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, why would a person say such a thing? How could a person say such a thing? Unless they saw, believed, and trusted that there is something in God's glorious beauty that could do for us what nothing else could do for us. We see some of that again in Psalm 63. Hear these words. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with rich feast. My mouth praises you with joyful lips. When I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you've been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Notice certain words in that psalm. I've looked upon you. I've beheld your power and glory. Your steadfast love is better than life. Now my soul is satisfied. I think and meditate on you and have joy. Isn't this remarkable? The psalmist sees God as the true, the good, and the beautiful one in whom there is lasting peace, satisfaction, and joy. The psalms remind us of a couple of things. One, it reminds us of this, that God is not simply an authority to be obeyed. He is also a beauty to be delighted in. I want to say it again because I think it's important for us to get. God is not simply an authority to be obeyed. He is that. Certainly, the ways of God are the ways of life. He gives us the commands for our good. To obey Him is life. But God is also magnificent, glorious, beautiful beyond compare, meant to be enjoyed and delighted in. 
That is to say, God wants us to not just obey Him, but to have joy in His presence, uh, to be satisfied by His love. Do you have that satisfaction in your heart this morning? Do we feel the joy of His presence, of being able to relate to Him? Do we see Him as a God who is both for us and with us? The psalm also reminds us that there's like a spiritual longing in us, uh, one that can only be satisfied in God Himself. That is, we are creatures made for beauty, mainly to see and savor the beauty that is the Lord, and then to reflect that beauty or shine that beauty into the world around us. I'm saying certain words on purpose that I want you to pick up on, that God wants us to see and savor the beauty that is God, so that then we can shine that beauty into the world around us. And it goes in that order. We are unable to shine or reflect the goodness and beauty of God into the world unless we behold it, unless we see it and savor it. That is to know it and delight in it. That transforms us. Beholding the beautiful God is what leads to a beautiful life. We need to know God as the true beauty, truth, and goodness that He is, and then love and enjoy that beauty, truth, and goodness in order to be able to reflect it into the world. I think we were made for it. I think it's necessary for our flourishing as human beings. A person might be able to exist without beauty, but cannot flourish without it. Now, the world, though, is often dark, right? and often ugly. It's often unsatisfying, all the more now that life is corrupted and fallen into darkness and evil. Despite that, though, traces of divine beauty remain all around us. In fact, beauty, truth, and goodness in person has come into the world and given His life for us and to us so that we can all be remade in that beauty, truth, and goodness and bring it into the world again. It's part of our vocation as Christians, being remade in God's image, now possessing new power by the Spirit to reflect God's truth and goodness and beauty into the world. This theme can be traced all throughout church history and various theologians. I'm going to highlight one in just a moment. But I think the theme itself is often forgotten or it's ignored or screened out by us. Maybe we think, again, that it's just not a very practical thing, (laughs) that it's not very useful to think about God as beauty and meditate on that. But I think we desperately need to recover it. I think that beauty has the power to heal our souls, to repair and strengthen our nature's Uh, Dostoevsky has in his novel, The Idiot, one of his characters says, beauty will save the world. And in a sense, this is really true. But perhaps we often fail, actually, to embody beautiful lives because we're starved for it. Because let's face it, when, when the world looks at Christianity, looks at the church, looks at us, they don't often see beautiful things, do they? They don't often hear truth, goodness, and beauty together being embodied or reflecting, reflected by us. They do some, Lord willing, hopefully, or at least I see it in many places in the church around the world. 
But perhaps when we fail to embody it, it is because we are starved for it. And being thus, we uh, look for beauty wrongly or in the wrong places. Sometimes it will excite us but never satisfy us. And often beauty gets diminished or reduced to some artificial, temporary attractiveness. The other day I was listening to an interview by Bono, uh, lead singer for U2, and he was reflecting on the 40 years of their musical career, and he was kind of talking about how things changed for them in the 90s. So in the 80s is when the band sort of comes on the scene, and they're like, they're almost like this miracle of a band that emerges, and they are driven by things larger than themselves that they're wanting to sing about and speak about and sing about. But by the end of the 80s, they have become world famous. They're like the world's best-selling rock band at the time. And if you track their kind of their history, in the 90s, they seem to kind of lose their way a little bit. They do some wacky stuff during that time. And Bono, he was reflecting on that, and he said what happened was that as they became more and more famous, they became self-conscious. And he says this, self-consciousness makes you ugly. Self-consciousness makes you ugly. He meant that both at a superficial level, at the physical level. He says you can take a, a bright, outgoing person and put a camera in their face, and all of a sudden they pull back and distort their face because now they're thinking about themselves rather than you. In another way, you can lose sight of the bigger, more beautiful thing you're living for and start living for yourself, and that too creates a kind of emotional or moral ugliness. Self-consciousness is not the same as self-awareness or self-knowledge. Those can be good things that help us live wisely. He means by this an inordinate concern for the self, where everything's just about how I'm being perceived, how I'm being seen and viewed, what I look like, sound like, all of that. And doesn't modern society just encourage us to always be self-conscious? We may be the most self-conscious age. Everywhere we go, there are mirrors and it's like we're just saying we want to look at ourselves. And everything is saying, look at yourself. Look at yourself in this mirror, in this picture, this photo, in this video. Modern society is certainly not saying, look at God and adore Him. It's saying, look at yourself and critique it. And then try to perfect it. Modern society is not saying, look at Scripture and behold the glory of God. It's saying, look at your phone and get anxious. It's not saying, look at creation and behold the beauty of God. It's don't look at, don't even go outside. <laughs> Modern society is not telling us to look around at the people around us and give thanks. It's saying, look at the people around you and compare. As I said, this theme of divine beauty is found all throughout church history. I actually have a big book in my office on theological aesthetics, and I was like, I wish I could just read this whole book this morning in the sermon. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to pick one, one person who seemed to understand these things and who wrote about them and tell you a little bit more about him. In Jonathan Edwards' uh, journals, he writes some about his own experience with God. Edwards lived in the early 1700s. He was a theologian of the First Great Awakening. He's someone who saw and wrote about God's beauty and excellence and its effect upon us when we delight in it. He was certainly not a perfect man. There are no 
flawless saints, but he saw some things very clearly. And I just want to kind of let you kind of take a peek at his private journal. Is that okay? Maybe we shouldn't read people's private journals, but you know, this, this is good and it's worthwhile. All right. See what he says about this. He writes, once as I rid out into the woods for my health around 1737, having lit for my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared to me so calm and sweet appeared great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. This is like being enraptured, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the bigger part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt with all an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express than to be emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust, to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love to trust in Him, to live upon Him, to serve and follow Him, and to be totally wrapped up in the fullness of Christ, to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I have several other times had views very much of the same nature and that had the same effects. (laughs) When I first read that and I was doing some research on Edward several years ago, I was just kind of blown away by it. Like, this is not simply some mystic living in the clouds, not simply some overly emotional soul. He might have been, but he was also the most educated person in all of New England at the time, having been a senior tutor at Yale. It's that fusion of mind and heart in him that I find so compelling. Again, we're going to look at another one. He talks about how nature can serve as a kind of icon for God. By that I mean is God's glory is revealed through it, and that by looking at it, it leads you up to Him. So beauty's like a, I mean, nature's like a secondary beauty that can be appreciated in its own right, but also because it leads you to appreciate the superior beauty of God. So he says this, uh, God's excellency, His wisdom, His purity and love seem to appear in everything, in the sun, moon, and stars, in the clouds, the blue sky, in the grass, flowers, trees, in the water, and all nature, which used greatly to fix my mind. I often used to sit and view the moon for a long time, and so in the daytime spent much time in viewing the clouds and sky to behold the sweet glory of God in these things. In the meantime, singing forth with a low voice my contemplations of the Creator and the Redeemer. Again, he writes, And when the light of the morning came, And the beams of the sun came in at the windows. It refreshed my soul from one morning to another. It seemed to me to be some image of the sweet light of God's glory. Does that sound like your mornings? I ask that because it doesn't often seem like my own. You compare that way of approaching the day with our, what you might call a secular liturgy of checking our phones first thing in the morning or the last at night. I've said this before, but Christians throughout the ages have recognized that first thing in the morning 
and just before bed are two times in the day when our souls tend to be most vulnerable. And so the church developed prayer liturgies to help us give our attention to God first thing in the morning and just before bed to both protect the soul in that vulnerability and to direct it to the thing that would care for it best, which is God. I do think our tech devices sometimes keep us from seeing the way that Edwards is talking about seeing. It keeps us from seeing the glory around it. Even if I access beautiful things with my phone, it doesn't have the same effect. It is not real enough, and it's too fast. Every morning when I open my computer on my desk in my office, it has some beautiful picture from nature, some landscape or some place in the world I've never been or never will get to go. And it, it even asks me, do you like what you see? <laughs> yes, I like what I see. It's beautiful. But I look at it all for about 10 seconds, not even that long, maybe two seconds, and then get on with my day. It's too fast to form me. It doesn't shape me positively because beholding or meditation takes slowness. Intentionality takes time. If you have the chance to go and visit the Oak Hill Museum these days, there's an exhibit by Makoto Fujimura there presently called Water Flames and Walking on Water. The art is done through a process that he calls slow art. Some of the paintings have 60 to 100 layers of paint on them, all meant to portray part of its message. And you kind of have to stand there for a while before you begin to sense what the artist is getting at through this medium, but it's worth it. When Edwards wrote these things in his journal, he was experiencing a time of renewal in his own life. It was a kind of awakening or revival in his own heart at the time. This is what he had to say about reading the scriptures. I often had, this is the last quote from him, I often had, and at other times, the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures of any book whatsoever. Oftentimes in reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I felt a harmony between something in my heart and those sweet and powerful words. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited in every sentence and such a refreshing, ravishing food communicated that I could not get along in reading. Used oftentimes to dwell long on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it. Yet almost every sentence seemed to be full of wonders. I have never said or experienced such a thing after being on my phone <laughs> or watching TV or whatever else. When I read that, does it do something to you? Does it make you think, I want to see that. I want to see the wonders there. I want to see the glory there. I want it to have that effect on me. I want it to be filled, refreshed, the soul to be satisfied, strengthened, helped, healed by these words. We can be. We can be. We have to fully engage to see this slowly, intentionally, with singular focus. I believe this matters so much for our hearts and minds. It matters so much for our happiness and flourishing. It also matters for our transformation. You see, we cannot grow or change in all the areas that we need to grow or change by willpower alone or by certain practices alone. I mean, don't get me wrong. Strength of will and healthy practices have a role to play. But what matters is the object of our affection the center 
of our love, the substance of our meditation, not just to meditate, but what we meditate on, to know the life that is truly life, that object, that center, that substance must be Christ Jesus. For it's only in Him that we see the beauty of God truly and fully manifested. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the Scripture says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness in creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. That's where you see it, the light of God's glory. And what does it do to us? Again, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, of Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God wants us not simply to obey Him in some servile way, but to be captivated by the beauty of Christ. He wants our hearts to be captured by the love of Christ. He wants our lives to feel compelled to live for Him. Like we just can't help it. He is what we know and love. He is what we see and savor. And that's why we want to reflect and shine it. We cannot shine the moral truth and goodness of God unless we see and savor the moral beauty of God. Let's pray together. Gracious God, please help us now to slow down, to breathe, and to behold you in our hearts, in our mind's eye. Would you please let that light shine into the dark places of our mind and heart so that we can see you for all your worth. And then give us eyes to see you all around us in the created world, in the ones we love, but supremely in Jesus Christ. I pray you would refresh every person with the rest that comes from this beauty, with the aliveness that comes from this beauty. Please help us to lay aside our pursuit of lesser beauties and to become captivated and satisfied by you, I pray in Christ's name.